0: The week before Father's Day is always National Men's Health Week, something I was not aware of till recently, but uh, this would be an excellent time for us to talk about some recent developments in men's health. And to help us do that is an editor of Men's Health Magazine, Greg Stebbin, who's going to talk about some truly fascinating developments involving some, I guess you'd say, old technology with a new application. Uh, Greg Stebbin, welcome to Radio Parallax.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: Let's first of all talk about the fact that, uh, you know, the week before Father's Day, people are trying to focus men on their health because men are not necessarily people that take good care of themselves
1: yeah we're the worst actually uh we're you know women just to illustrate that point, you know we all know about breast cancer, you know we know what a pink ribbon means we you know even guys know how to perform a breast check, we know why it's important, we know what a mammogram is you know we may it may be titillating and funny, but we know it, and how many people, including men? really know anything about prostate cancer, which is sort of the male equivalent of breast cancer. About 40,000 women a year die of breast cancer. About 30,000 guys a year die of prostate cancer. And breast cancer gets all the publicity and and more publicity every year, thanks to organizations like the Susan G. Komen organization and things. And part of the reason is women are brilliant at taking care of themselves, staying alert to what's important, and taking care of each other. You know, the the word sister really applies to women. They really, they're not only focused on their own health, but they want to make sure that their friends, their sisters, their mothers, their daughters also know what's best for them. And as guys, we are a complete and utter failure at not only taking care of ourselves, but we're not even very good at taking care of our buddies unless it's dragging them out of a bar because the guys had too much to drink and driving them home.
0: So how do you make this point uh, at Men's Health Magazine that, that guys need to get off their butts and get, uh, get their health checked?
1: Well, we were really instrumental some years ago in in having Congress pass a resolution making the week before Father's Day National Men's Health Week, which is the case now every year. And we think National Men's Health Week is extremely important, not just for us guys. I mean, it's important there, and, you know, our readers know that we think it's important, and we have a huge reach in the United States and around the world. We have a huge male readership. But we also think that it's important for women to know it's National Men's Health Week too because you know incrementally every year guys get better at taking care of their health but when you add in the support of the women in our lives our sisters our mothers our friends us guys have a much better chance of living longer and living healthier lives because frankly women have already proven they know how to take care of health and so if we can get their support then we have better longer lives ahead of us too.
0: Well, Greg, let's talk about the fact that it is Father's Day coming up, and I, I have to say that nine years ago, I lost my dad to prostate cancer. It uh, It is a huge problem, and we do have some good news in this area, which I want to talk about. Um, uh, in the introduction, I mentioned some, some old technology, and there's probably nothing older than man's best friend, the dog, and what he can do, and there's some new evidence now that... Uh, that the nose of the dog may prove useful in detecting cancers.
1: It's very exciting, and there's also, as you kind of alluded to it, it, there's an interesting irony to it as well. You know, dog being man's best friend, uh, some researchers in France have discovered... Let me start with the theory, really. The theory was that... When a man's body began making a prostate cancer tumor, it may cause some unique chemical reactions in the body. That makes sense. I think we can all look at that and go, yeah, okay, that makes sense. So if the body's making a un- having a unique chemical reaction that is in some way related to the creation of a prostate cancer tumor, that unique chemical reaction may have a unique scent. And if it does, in fact, have a unique scent, there may be a way some powerful force in the universe let's say that could identify that scent and let us know when it's present and when it's present it may signal that there's the beginning or or the beginning of a prostate cancer tumor or one that's continuing to develop and so what is that powerful force in the universe that could find that scent and identify it it's a dog <laughs> yes a dog uh, what these researchers in France discovered was they could have the dog, they could train one dog, one dog right now, to identify that unique scent, and when he smelled it from a urine sample, the dog sits. It's really that simple. And this dog, which is a shepherd, is also well known as being a bomb-sniffing dog, and it just turns out that it is possible to train a dog to detect this unique scent, and it, is, it, it appears that this unique scent really is a very valuable marker for identifying prostate cancer tumors because we can talk about how effective today's current testing, the PSA test, is, how effective or ineffective that is, but this dog identified 63 out of 66 men with prostate cancer tumors.
0: Which is, which is really, we should point out, very specific that those are really, that, that's scientifically very good batting average.
1: Well, it's it's staggering, actually. Uh, interestingly enough, they were, for the three men that got the false positives, but what's interesting is in one of the places where the dog incorrectly made an identification, it turns out that the dog was right after all because they took one of those men who they did not think had cancer and did a deeper examination, and it turned out that he did. Uh, If you contrast this with the PSA test, they say that if every man who had a PSA test result that indicated a high level or high odds of prostate cancer, if every one of those men got a biopsy, that two-thirds of those men would be getting a biopsy for no reason because they would find out they did not have cancer. And so that's really a seriously important number to consider for a lot of reasons. One is if if the PSA test is really only right a third of the time, it's not a very good test. It's the best test we have, but it's still not a very good test. Also think about the cost of all those biopsies the possible medical complications from those unnecessary biopsies. And let's not forget the emotional cost for two-thirds of those men going through what we call a cancer scare, them going through a cancer scare, their families going through a cancer scare, you know, having two-thirds of all men Uh, who have high PSA test scores having biopsies for no reason, other than to find out they don't have cancer, if we can eliminate those kinds of statistics, both the financial and emotional costs are huge. And again, it looks like we may have man's best friend to thank for a better way to test for this really horrible disease.
0: Well, Greg, I have to interject at this point uh, exactly what you're talking about and put a little personal touch on it, uh, given that I have a very high risk Given my family history for prostate cancer, I went in dutifully to get checked, year before last, I guess it was, and um, based on the PSA levels, which are very problematic, I had the urologist tell me, well, we need to do a biopsy. Now, as, as a physician, I was able to, to sit down, talk to other friends, consult with people and uh, do the research and conclude that this was probably premature, and of course, that's, that is eventually what we, we concluded by consulting with other urologists, et cetera. But, but yes, there's a moment where you're being told, we need to do a biopsy here, and all you can think about is the fact that, oh my God, this this could be it. And in my case, it was based on the fact that we have a very poor test, a PSA test, as you say, very prone to, uh, to false uh, readings, scaring the heck out of people, and in many cases, having them have procedures that are done that weren't necessary. So th- the fact that you could have a more accurate test Take it from me. Is, uh, th- this is big news and important news.
1: There's another layer to prostate cancer that, that I think sometimes gets overlooked as well, and that is that it's a very complicated disease to deal with even after it's diagnosed. It's, you know, if you break your leg, you go to the emergency room, and they say, we know how to fix that. If you have, I don't know, you know, I mean, a lot of things that happen to the human body, doctors say, You know, we know how to fix that. Let's go fix it. With prostate cancer, there is so much, there is such a large amount of gray now. Your doctor has said, yes, you have prostate cancer. And now the next questions are things like, is it fast-growing or slow-growing? If it's slow-growing, we recommend these treatments. If it's fast-growing, we recommend some other treatments. You know, there's a huge number of men who here they have prostate cancer, and they actually take a course of action, which is to do nothing. It's called watchful watch waiting. And and really all they do is they continue to go back and get tested and their doctor monitors their PSA test, w- looking for change. As long as there's no change, the, the 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 prevailing wisdom is that it's better for these men to do nothing than to do something invasive. But no matter what treatment you choose for prostate cancer, it's going to be unpleasant and it's going to have consequences and there is there is no right answer so again that's part of why being able to identify the cancer and eliminate the false positives or the false alarms is so significant because it means men are not having to potentially make those kind of choices when they're unnecessary. But it's also just important for men and women to understand how complicated this disease is because ultimately, your best shot of surviving and surviving with a great quality of life afterward is called early detection and that's probably the thing that this dog and more dogs will bring for us is the ability to quickly and easily detect prostate cancer so that it can be treated at the best possible
0: time. Well, I've spent a lot of time talking about this very topic with, uh, with more than one urologist and doing some research and there's one tip I'd want to put out for our listeners and, and for you maybe to, to relay into the magazine is that a lot of people feel that when you're doing a PSA test, it's important to abstain from any sexual activity for at least three days beforehand and make sure you don't have any trauma to the area, as in riding a bicycle. And in my particular case, I think that uh, uh, not paying attention to that gave me some bumped-up levels, and and that wound up uh-huh. uh, getting my urologist all uh, ready, to, ready to get the, the needles out and start poking me. And I think that uh, listeners should know that very good idea as a precaution just to make sure if you get a PSA test that you don't do anything that might might bump your level up.
1: That's a that's great advice and some other advice is, you know, family history is important when considering when to begin getting a PSA test. You know, certain populations have a higher risk of prostate cancer. I think African Americans are part of that group. Yes. Um, it, all of this is important information for us guys. To accumulate and think about for ourselves, you know, it used to be that as a kind of a hard and fast rule, uh, the medical community would say you should start getting a PSA test at fifty. You know, the, the the recommendations now are a little grayer now.
0: I have to jump in, Greg. It is really gray. Having just gone to this uh, this urologic meeting, they had one for primary doctors and. It's at the point where they're almost saying, well, you ought to get a digital exam somewhere along the way, and you need to get your PSA checked, and we're not really sure what to do with the data. So it's almost as if you're on your own. I mean, you should get these things checked, but it's very gray right now.
1: And I'm not sure that saying you're on your own is a bad thing. I mean, in a sense, it puts the responsibility back where it perhaps belongs. I, for instance, began getting very interested in prostate cancer. just about as I was to turn 40, I had no reason to become interested other than the sociological aspect of it fascinated me. Many of the things we're talking about now, men not sharing with their friends about the importance of the PSA test, while women were so great at talking to their friends about mammograms and such. True, true, yeah. And I decided at age 40, I was going to start getting PSA tests every other year. My doctor didn't recommend it. My insurance company wouldn't pay for it. But I just said, you know what, I'm going to start doing this at 40. I'm going to do it every other year. Then what that did for me and what I think is valuable for other men to consider is it gave me a baseline. And when, if on your 50th birthday you go get a PSA test and your level is slightly elevated – You don't know what it was a year before, so you don't know if slightly elevated is normal for you or or a huge reason to be concerned. So getting a baseline with a simple blood test is an incredibly valuable thing to do. Maybe 40 is too early. Maybe it's 45. But ultimately, guys, it's your body. You're the one who's going to pay the consequences of not knowing or not catching it soon enough.
0: Well, I want to validate your approach on that, Greg. I think having more data so you can see if there's a spike and how quickly it's accelerating, having a little more data there is very useful in the decision-making process.
1: You know, there's another part of the whole prostate cancer conversation that's important to understand as well, and that is that they used to say that all men died with prostate cancer, not of prostate cancer, but with prostate cancer. And that's because as men age, And as we as men are living longer, it's, I don't know if this is really appropriate to say, but I'm gonna say it to shortcut the conversation, it's almost a natural thing for men to have some prostate cancer evidence in their bodies by the time they reach their 70s, 80s, or 90s. But at that age, you know, for instance, if a doctor detects a high PSA test for a man in his 70s or 80s, uh, the doctor will probably just say, live with it. You know, the the what you would have to go through to treat that prostate cancer would be worse than you just living your life out with the prostate cancer. It's probably never going to grow to be serious enough to affect your long-term life. So, just the fact that we live longer has increased the incidences of prostate cancer, but we also see lots more cases of men in their 40s and 50s and 60s Having prostate cancer or even dying of prostate cancer, and so it really needs to be something we keep on our radar for the rest of our lives once we reach a certain age.
0: Well, absolutely. They they taught us in medical school, Greg, that uh, if you if a man lives to be ninety something, uh, you, you, and you, at autopsy his prostate will have some cancer in it. It may not be a factor, may not be significant, yeah. but a low level cancer can you can pretty much count on being there. So the the, the yes, the the, the earlier <laughs> it turns up in person, the more of course significant it is.
1: Well, and then again, that's that's why I think a, a strong argument for getting a PSA test and creating a baseline is uh, so valuable. So again, if you have an elevated test score, without some history, there's no context. If you're an 80-year-old man or a 70-year-old man and you get your first PSA test and your number is elevated, what does that mean and, and what do we do about it? We don't know what to do about it, We meaning your doctors, because... We just don't know how fast it's growing, and knowing how fast it's growing is essential for knowing how to move forward with treatment.
0: And I also want to put the message out there to people, feel free to consult with more than one doctor. <laughs> That's what I did, uh, myself included, and I was, uh, I was glad I did. The reasoning here that you can pick up a chemical marker has been borne out not just with prostate, but with breast cancer, lung cancer, and with skin cancers. They, they were able to use dogs actually smelling the breath of people that are suspected of having breast cancer, lung cancer, and they're able to detect it on that. They're able to smell the skin of people that have certain types of skin cancer, and the dogs are very good at telling which ones are problematic. And I guess now with, um, with the prostate, they're going to have the dog sniff uh, the, the, the patient's a specimen of the urine.
1: That, that's right. I mean, y- you know, jokingly, Well, there's all kinds of jokes we can make about this and dogs. What's the first thing two dogs do? Okay, we don't have to go any further with that. You know, dogs love to sniff the urine of other dogs. I mean, it's just, you know, for all the jokes we can make about dog behavior and how different they are from humans and all the jokes we can make about the dog being man's best friend, there's just a real beautiful symmetry to this, you know? The dog has been such a loyal friend to man for so long. And now he reaffirms his position in, in literally a life-saving way. It, it, it is worth talking about. Well, where do we go next? There's, there's one dog. There's a lot of guys on the planet. How many right. dogs? You know, how many urine samples can that one dog sniff? You know, I, I assume he has his limits. But <laughs> the, the plan with these researchers is to train additional dogs. And I think that's a really important step, because I think they now have to find out, is there something unique about this dog? Can other dogs have the same or similar successful results? Uh, and then how scalable is it? Was this dog just uniquely uh, open to training? Is it hard to train other dogs? Will other dogs be even easier to train? You know, so there's a scalability issue. How many dogs can we train? Now, granted, having a worldwide team of prostate-sniffing dogs is probably not feasible in the long run, but the idea is to take the learning from this dog, pass it on to additional dogs, and then take the learning from the additional dogs and begin to find ways to apply the knowledge we can gain from the dogs to identify that unique scent in a clinical way so that, at the end of the day, you know, the dogs are great, we love the dogs, but let's figure out a way to do this clinically or pharmaceutically so that there is some kind of urine test or blood test or breath test, as you suggested, some other way of detecting the scent so that this kind of detection can get out to the most men possible on a worldwide basis.
0: Well, obviously what they'd like to be able to do down the road, and this is probably not that far off, is to have some kind of electronic nose that is able to mimic what the dog is doing and be able to pick up these markers but uh science has been lagging on how in the sense of smell and how to exactly do that but but I'm confident that in the next few years they're they're going to actually dial this in.
1: Yeah, I think whether it's an electronic nose or some other means what I think is really exciting about this kind of research is it's really it's it's out of the box thinking. I mean, for years, well, look, let's go back in history. You know, for years, doctors checked for prostate cancer with what's called the digital exam. You know, all us guys have joked about this at one right. point or another. Which, which nobody is, likes which, it, which but is, you know, nobody wants to die either. Right. Uh, the, the PSA test came along, much more effective. It's a blood test, it's, you know, much less invasive, shall we say, but again, not very successful. And for researchers to move from the idea of a blood test to a scent, you know, which is really getting down to a much more granular level, it's just clear that in the cancer community overall, I mean, you read it in the headlines every day about research that's being done, the researchers are thinking in new, more creative, and more aggressive ways. And I think we all agree and hope that, you know, Many, many other forms of cancer detection and prevention like this one will come along.
0: Well, I'm, I'm confident that they will, and, and I hope that uh, as there's some developments in this area, Greg, you might want to come back and we can talk about those as well, because I'm sure that uh, there's going to be some things in the next uh, months to years that are going to be remarkable.
1: I would be delighted to do that. And it's really been a pleasure to talk with you and your listeners about uh, both this breakthrough in prostate cancer detection and National Men's Health Week.
0: Greg Stebbins, been a pleasure to have you.
1: Thank you.